Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Michelle Charles. Um, thank you all for coming. I'm the Director of Policy Advocacy at the Médecins Sans Frontières. Um, and we're very pleased that so many of you could come to this uh, informal conciliation process in the WTO. Um, <laughs> we uh, are here to talk about the now notorious case of uh, the detention of medicines in transit from uh, developing countries through the EU uh, to other developing countries. And these uh, uh, detentions are on the basis of an EU customs regulation. And the incidents in question have highlighted concerns about whether these regulations are in compliance with the TRIPS agreement and also the GATT agreement. But what we're concerned about in, in MSF is the practical effects as well as the legal niceties here. So let's recap on what actually happened. What we're talking about here is that in late 2008, custom officials in the Netherlands and Germany have seized 19 shipments of legitimate generic medicines. 18 of the shipments were legally manufactured and exported from India and one shipment from China. And these were intended for developing countries where they could be legally imported. Patents did not exist on the medicines in either the country of origin or destination. The Shipments were seized as a result of the interpretation of this customs regulation and they were not intended for domestic consumption in the EU and border officials, however, seized them on the basis that they may infringe either trademark or patent rules within the EU. The medicines that were seized include those for cardiovascular diseases, and key antiviral medicines such as abacavir. And what's kind of interesting here is that you have one branch of the EU that is pursuing this agenda, but on the other hand is stopping shipments of medicines which are paid for by EU member states. The abacavir medicines were paid for by Unitaid, which is in part funded by two member states, the UK and France. Why is MSF concerned about this? Because many countries do not have manufacturing capacity to produce medicines, and they rely on importing affordable generic medicines from abroad in order to treat their population. As such, the trade in legitimate medicines between countries is fundamental to ensuring access to millions to medicines. And MSF ourselves, we rely on 80% of our ARVs from Indian generics. The provisions to ensure that the countries that don't have manufacturing capacity can access medicines enshrined in the Doha Declaration and the WTO August the 30th decisions can't be implemented effectively, in our view, if on key transit routes the risk exists that supplies could be regularly subjected to interception based on the assertion of patent infringement in the transit country. What we have also seen is that there are enduring consequences 
to those seizures. Not only were there risks to the patients concerned because of treatment interruption, some of the detentions withheld the medicines for up to eight months. In those circumstances, any financial compensation is not sufficient. It is access to medicines that is required. We have also seen that generic manufacturers uh, and uh, suppliers have been diverting shipments from the EU, which is raising costs. The other concern that we have is that one of the justifications that was given for seizing these medicines, that they were in somehow counterfeit. And this was continuing the blurring that we have seen between fake and substandard medicines and legitimate generic medicines. We are encouraged that some of the most recent statements from the EU are moving away from this claim and recognize that the detentions were, in fact, based on purely commercial protections for IPR rights, and these medicines were not fake and they were uh, legitimate generic. It comes as no surprise to say that MSF condemns these detentions. We are also concerned that the EU is seeking to export this flawed and dangerous provision via free trade agreements and, we understand, through uh, provisions in the secretive actor negotiations. So where are we now? Today we are in the slightly strange situation that everyone agrees that these detentions should not have happened. We have the uh, Director General of the WTO, of the WHO, we have the uh, pharmaceutical companies who have issued press releases saying that they don't believe that generic medicines should be detained. We have members of the European Commission, we have civil society all saying that this shouldn't happen, that it is a problem. But why are we still talking about it? The reason that we are still talking about it is that there has not been a legally binding, enduring solution that has been proposed. And we believe that that solution requires the regulation to be changed. Now, there are genuine questions to be raised about how that regulation should be changed. For us, at a minimum, patents need to be excluded from its remit. But in order to come up with the appropriate amendment of the regulation, you first of all need political will from the EU that they recognize that there is a problem and they have a willingness to change. And we hope today to have some discussion to see how far that political will is in existence. But you also need to ensure that the regulations are amended and involve all stakeholders who have both an involvement in the outcome but also a uh, real understanding of the commercial and other requirements that are necessary to make this effective. So that's why today we have gathered together a distinguished group of stakeholders of those uh, governments and institutions who are actively involved in discussions, but we also have representatives of suppliers who have been affected by the detentions. 
We did try to get uh, representatives of the pharmaceutical industry, but they were unable to send a formal representative, but we do know that there are members in the audience, so I would invite them to, to speak up. But what I would say on that is that although the statements from the pharmaceutical industry are welcome that uh, they do not believe that generic medicines should be stopped in transit, we do not believe that it is a sufficient solution to rely on a press release to confirm that these uh, seizures will not happen again. So we think that there is a real requirement to look at how these regulations should be changed to ensure a permanent solution. So in order to discuss, first of all, some of the legal issues that are raised, I um, am very happy to uh, pass over to uh, Professor Carlos Correa, who will talk through some of the legal issues that have been raised. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michelle. Uh, thank you for the invitation the possibility of uh, sharing this discussion with this qualified group of uh, people, experts, and, and many friends. Um, so, as requested, I will address some of the legal issues that may be considered in order to look at the consistency of the European regulation which has been mentioned with the WTO rules. I'll make this very briefly in, uh, under GATT first and secondly under the CHIPS agreement. So under GATT, as, as you know, we have um, Article 5, which is a cornerstone for a, a system which promotes trade, in accordance to which uh, member countries uh, must ensure freedom of transit through the territory of the contracting parties. And this article also states that all charges and regulations imposed shall be reasonable. So the question here is whether uh, preventing the uh, transit of these goods, of these medicines, was a reasonable regulation, was a reasonable measure. I think the reply is clearly it was not reasonable, because essentially because patent rights, as, as we all know, are territorial in nature. And, the, and this is a principle which has been accepted since the Paris Convention. It has been, in fact, confirmed by the decision adopted on the 30th of August of 2003, where the issue is referred to. And this means that patent rights can only be exercised within the jurisdiction where the patent has been granted. In this case, the medicines are not entering into the uh, territory of the uh, Netherlands or, or whatever other European country is. And therefore, it's an essential argument in all this discussion is not, not, not only about territoriality, but about the scope of the patent rights. And none of the, none of the exclusive rights which are conferred by, by a patent have been violated by the medicines in transit that uh, Michel has, has referred to. There is very little jurisprudence, as you know, regarding Article 5 of that. There is, however, a recent case. Colombia, indicative prices and restrictions on post of entry, and there the panel held uh, that Article 5.2 requires unrestricted access for passage of goods in transit. I think that's quite a strong statement. And also, in this case, uh, the panel dismissed the uh, defense uh, based on Article 20, Paragraph D of GATS, which might be eventually argued could also provide a defense in this case. 
Uh, as you may recall, this, uh, this paragraph D um, refers to measures necessary to secure compliance with laws or regulations not inconsistent with that. Therefore, this paragraph introduces the necessity test. It's not, it's not a measure which is convenient, which is desirable. It should be a measure, measure which is needed to address the situation. And again, I think that uh, on the basis of the scope of patent rights, uh, this test cannot, cannot be met. Uh, in addition, as you may recall, in order to uh, apply such um, an exception, you also need to comply with chapeau of Article 20, which in my view will also exclude a possible exception based on, on this paragraph. If the European Union had the right <coughs> to detain uh, goods in transit, such as medicines, as it is this case, because they might violate intellectual property rights in one, in one European country, they could perhaps also detain a, an electrical machine because it does not comply with the technical standards which are applied in Germany or in, or in Netherlands. They could perhaps also detain uh, food that contains genetically modified organisms because these have not been approved in the European Union. So if this, if this type of approach is, is followed and, and the European Union continues to, to apply this uh, European regulation, as it was in the case, we will have something like a universal custodian of intellectual property uh, on the basis of European legislation, not on the basis of the law which applies in the country of exportation and in the country of importation. And obviously this will be clearly against the principle of territoriality of patents and the principle of independence of patents, which, as, as you know, are part of, clearly part of the Paris Convention and also the TRIPS Agreement. So let me move now to the TRIPS Agreement. Uh, probably the arguments about uh, the agreement and this case are, are very well known for, for many of uh, those present here. The first important article to be referred to is Article 41, Paragraph 1 which is uh, of paramount importance for the interpretation of and application of Part 3 of the CHIPS Agreement, which uh, provides that enforcement procedures shall be applied in a manner as to avoid the creation of barriers to legitimate trade and to provide safeguards against their abuse. And this very provision is uh, confirmed by the preamble that contains similar wording. So the case here, I think we, we, we are analyzing here, is a case in which clear, there was clear legitimate trade because it was a legitimate generic medicine, and there have been some other cases. Um, and therefore, this, this provision um, ap applies to the situation. In addition, Article 51, uh, which um, specifically deals with uh, border measures, as you know, there is, a, there is an obligation for member countries to apply border measures only to situations in the case of copyright piracy and trademark uh, counterfeit, and there is an optional possibility to apply in, in other situations. And footnote 13 indicates that there shall be no obligation to apply such procedures to goods in transit. A similar provision, in fact, is contained in Article 9, Paragraph 4 of the Paris Convention in relation to trademarks. An argument could be made that this provision does not prevent a member to have a SRIPS Plus uh, solution and apply, and apply border measures to, um, to goods in transit. 
However, I, I think that Article 51 should be read in conjunction with Article 52, uh, which, which establishes that there must be uh, some evidence provided that there is prima facie an infringement under the laws of the country of importation. And in this case, of course, uh, the custom authority in the Netherlands or in other European countries is not the competent authority to determine whether there is an infringement in the country of importation, see Brazil, so they have no jurisdiction at all to do this. And in addition, as, as, as we know, because of the peculiarity of this case, there has been no importation itself in the European Union. So my conclusion will be that in the light of uh, the GATT uh, uh, article I have referred to and the uh, provisions in the TRIPS, in the TRIPS agreement, the uh, measures adopted in, in this case by Netherlands, there have been other cases, are inconsistent with uh, these uh, provisions. And I would say that the, the clause in the European regulation itself is inconsistent. And the reason for this is that um, I think this, this clause creates a systemic problem. It's not just this, this uh, detainment of goods has not been just an accident. It is a systemic problem with the, the European regulation. And I was, I was looking at uh, a report produced by the European Commission in 2007 on, on community customs activities in counterfeit and piracy. And in this report, it is indicated that 42% of goods detained per year in Europe are goods in transit. So this is not an isolated case. There may be different reasons for which this has taken place, but clearly there is uh, a problem with the broad scope of the European uh, custom regulation. But let me just analyze by, by referring to two paradoxes in, in, uh, that may, may help to understand better this case. The first paradox is that the European, uh, the European uh, Court of Justice has decided a number of cases relating to trademarks in which the issue of the right of the trademark owner in relation to goods in transit was addressed specifically. And interestingly, these decisions led to the conclusion that uh, transit does not constitute infringement regardless of whether there is infringement in the country of origin or in the country of destination. And the only situation in which an intervention was accepted where was where there was a proven risk of diversion of the goods into the community market, which was not the case. A second paradox I'd like to refer is the fact that custom authorities seem to be taking these measures quite, quite normally, quite regularly in, in many situations. And this is in very sharp contrast to the attitude that judges have in Europe in connection with preliminary injunctions. So for a judge to grant a preliminary injunction in a patent case in most European, in most European uh, countries, there must be a very, very special situation. Judges are very reluctant to do so because it's very difficult to determine infringement on a prima facie basis. And secondly, because in many cases are doubts about the validity of the patent itself which is, as you know, sometimes, sometimes precarious. Just to give you um, statistics uh, provided by the Patent Office in France, between 1984 and 2004, that is 20, 20 years, there were 6,000 requests 
of preliminary injunctions in patent litigation in France. Out of these requests, only 19 were granted. So, this shows a completely different attitude towards this, this situation. And I think, lastly, we need to recall that in the case of pharmaceuticals, there is no single patent for an active ingredient. There is a major proliferation of patents around any single active ingredient. The European Commission, Commission finalized recently a report on competition in the pharmaceutical industry where it was found that for one single blockbuster there were about 1,200 patents or patent applications in Europe. And what we found, therefore, is that for a particular active ingredient there are patents on polymorph, on salts, on formulations, on isomers, and it's extremely difficult for a custom authority to determine whether there is infringement in the first place. So I would like to conclude then, therefore saying that there is a need, as Michel has, has mentioned, to review the uh, European regulation in terms of transiting goods, but also in connection to the, its applicability to patent infringement, which, as it stands today, the regulation is really prone for abuses to abuses by patent owners that can use this package, this thicket of patents, in order to prevent legitimate trade. Thank you, Michel. Thank you, Carlos, for that uh, very uh, helpful and thorough overview. Can I now turn to uh, Sanjay Sanjay, who is the Councillor of the Permanent Mission of India to the WTO. Sanjay. Thanks, Michelle, and thanks for inviting uh, me here for this forum. Since January this year, much has been said, much has been heard, but practically nothing concrete has been done about reviewing EC Customs Regulation 1383 slash 2003, in spite of its inconsistency with provision of GATT, the TRIPS Agreement, and the spirit of the Doha Declaration on TRIPS Agreement and Public Health. Several developing countries, including India and Brazil, have raised it in the General Council, TRIPS Council, and other international fora, and highlighted that the widespread and repeated seizures under the EC Regulation 1383 have an adverse systemic impact on the principle of universal access to medicines, national public health budgets, legitimate trade of generic medicines, South-South commerce, and also seriously impair the efforts of civil society organizations engaged in providing medicines and improving public health in the least developed parts of the world. Let me turn to Indian efforts with the EC to address this issue. India has taken up the issue bilaterally with the EC at the level of senior officials and even at the level of ministers. We have also formally written to the EC several times. Regrettably, we have received very few responses, which, other than reiterating commitment to Doha Declaration, gloss over the issue and do not mention any concrete steps being taken or plan to be taken by the EC to rectify the situation. Two weeks ago, the EC forwarded to us an explanatory note dated July 31, which it had sent to member states on the application of the Regulation 1383 of 2003. The note provides us no comfort at all. It merely shifts the blame to member states for applying their national laws and the responsibility for interpretation to the national courts. The note totally disregards the permissiveness 
of the EC regulation itself. Prior to 2003, the scope of EC regulations covered only trademark and copyright infringements. If EC regulation 13A3 additionally covers patents and other IPRs and extends to goods in transit, it alone is to blame for the recent drug seizures since it provides the basis for member states to apply IPRs extraterritorially and to goods in transit. The note in a redundant exercise also repeats the timelines indicated in Article 55 TRIPS. Elaborating in great detail on the timelines in the note seems to be an effort at evading the real issue. It need not be re-emphasized that these timelines were hardly followed by the customs authorities in the various cases of drug seizures in 2008. We ask ourselves the question, is it true that it is only the national laws of member states responsible for maximalist enforcement norms? The Dutch Minister for Foreign Trade, Frank Hemskirk, responding to some parliament members earlier this month said, and I quote, the Dutch Customs Department acted in accordance with extant EU legislation and in particular Council Regulation EC 1383-2003, unquote. The minister further states that, quote, the basis of a solution must therefore be sought within European legislation itself, unquote. We can't think of a clearer articulation of where the problem lies. The EC even refuses to acknowledge that these were seizures. They refer to them, them as temporary detainments. We do not understand why consignments were detained up to four months in spite of the clear 10 plus 10 day stipulation of trips. Some consignments actually never reached the destination countries. The importers were asked to take them back. We have asked the EC about the fact that although regula the regulation is six years old, why have the drug seizures taken place fairly recently? We are told about the ambitious Operation Medifake. Yesterday, at an EC meeting, Patrick Revier, who is present with us, said, and I quote, the regulation's aim is to stop drugs violating IPRs, unquote. We get very confusing signals. Are the seizures to deal with spurious drugs or with IPRs? India is as much against spurious drugs as any other country, but here we see a deliberate mixing up of the issue of spurious substandard drugs, etc., with intellectual property rights. Let me also emphasize that the seizure cases involve legitimate generic medicines, which are neither fake nor counterfeit nor pirated medicines, whatever the term pirated medicines may mean. Actually, all this does not stop there. It seems to be a part of a larger design for maximalist enforcement of IPRs. There seems to be an orchestrated campaign of deliberately confusing quality issues with IPRs in international organizations like the WHO, insistence on TRIPS plus elements in FTAs being negotiated, and to top it all, negotiating the anti-counterfeit trade agreement, the ACTA, amid secrecy and exclusion of a vast majority of countries, including developing countries and LDCs. The EC Regulation 1383 is open to interpretation and implementation in different ways. Therefore, a Democles sword is always hanging. Our experience has been that the sword falls on generic drugs more than mobile phones. It's also ironical 
that while on the one hand, EC countries are providing funds for public health programs of developing countries, at the same time, they create barriers to legitimate trade in generics and hamper access to medicines. Actually, EC Regulation 1383 promotes this dichotomy. The multitude of drug seizures indicates an emerging pattern to disrupt and create barriers to legitimate trade of generic drugs and to challenge the Doha Declaration on Public Health. If the EC is committed to Doha Declaration and supports access to medicine, what explains the repeated drug seizures of medicines including AIDS and serious heart ailments? Is it that with the decline in patenting of blockbuster drugs and new chemical entities, European pharma companies see a threat from generic industry as more and more drugs go off patent? If this is so, it comes at a huge humanitarian cost. On the issue of WTO compatibility, in our view, EC Regulation 1383 violates CAT 5 that allows freedom of transit by most economical and convenient routes. It also violates border measures enshrined in Article 41 to 61 of TRIPS. In particular, the application violates the key TRIPS principle of territoriality and Article 41, which obliges members to avoid creation of barriers to legitimate trade. This is not our view alone. The European Generic Medicines Association wrote to the EC in February this year that such an application to drugs which are IP compliant in country of origin and destination, and I quote, will effectively create a barrier to the trade in legitimate generic medicines worldwide and is contrary to Article 41 of the TRIPS Agreement, unquote. Professor Carlos Correa has just elaborated on these uh, legal issues. Coming back to Mr. Raviar's statement yesterday in Brussels, he outlined several initiatives not to disturb the legitimate trade of generics also when they are in transit, namely reminding member states and national authorities to pay attention to the distinction between counterfeit and generic. Number two, giving further instructions, informations to customs. Number three, initiating a dialogue with pharmaceutical industries and associating India and Brazil in this exercise of transparency and dialogue. We agree with the transparency and uh, that, that transparency and dialogue are essential. However, it would be interesting to note that we are yet to hear from the EC about details of the seized consignment. Our only information is the one provided by the Dutch government in response to a request made by HAI Europe. Mr. Raviar also mentioned that, and I quote, in addition, the EC is reviewing the whole regulation and will keep alert on this dossier, unquote. We also hear several MEPs making the demand to review the Regulation 1383. Perhaps Mr. Luke Devine could elaborate on whether EC has serious plans to review 1383. Our conclusions. The issue of seizure of generic consignments is not merely a trade issue. It's much larger than that. It is a humanitarian issue. It's an issue of immense public interest, of access to affordable and efficacious medicines, and closely related to the right to health. This concern is clearly brought out, brought out in the report of the Special Repertoire on the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, submitted to the 11th session of the Human Rights Council in June this year. The EC needs to walk the talk in its stated commitment to facilitate access to medicines in developing countries and the Doha Declaration on Public Health. 
We see the EC Regulation 1383-2003 at the root of the problem. To find a lasting solution to the problem, it is imperative that this regulation is reviewed and brought in line with GATS, TRIPS, and the spirit of the Doha Declaration on Public Health. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sanjay, and, and I think you've uh, set up our, our, the uh, questions to our next speaker very well. Um, I'm very grateful to um, Shaldivine, the Head of Intellectual Property uh, Unit at the Director General for Trade of the European Commission for agreeing to join us today. Um, Shaldivine. Thank you very much. Quite an act of accusation, I must say. So. Um, I'm afraid that uh, I might not answer to each and every argument made because I don't want to bore the audience uh, in this beautiful sunny day. But um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting us uh, here to Geneva and uh, very happy to, come, to have come here. Uh, <clears throat> I think there's, uh, first of all, a preliminary de declaration I would like to make is that not everybody in the audience can see the little recorder here, but actually, basically, uh, everything you say will or can be withheld against you. And therefore, since some countries in this room have threatened us with WTO litigation, I will abstain uh, from legal nature argument because I prefer to reserve these for any WTO panel that might be held at their request. I should also say that it's probably better to avoid our audience to fall asleep. But I will indeed address some of the points which have, uh, which have been made. Well, first of all, and we've heard my friend Sunjay um, uh, explaining the plot theory. Um, well, I have to disappoint him because, well, either there is no plot theory or then we are very bad at plotting because if all what we're talking about is a grand scheme of the EU to protect, I don't know what, uh, pharma interests, we're very bad at it because what are we talking about? We're talking about a very few limited case in 2008. And I'm sure that um, if there had been any more cases, we'd have heard of it. So... Uh, not much ado about nothing, but much noise about nothing. I, I leave to speculators uh, whether or not uh, the campaign around uh, these uh, events are not motivated by political reasons. We have had these uh, detainments, and I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman, if I can correct you, not seizure. The difference is that a seizure are goods which are taken away from its owner and are not returned whereas a detainment is temporary. And apart from the case uh, which has been referred to of four months, which is indeed a criminal law case, and that's the reason why it takes four months, because, of course, the fact that you call a box of anything legitimate generic medicine in transit doesn't mean that there is not, I don't know what, radioactive plutonium or drugs or anything like that. So you can't simply carve out um, a, 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 a category there. But indeed, they were detained, they were, uh, they, they were detained and, and not seized. And this is very important because uh, goods were, were, were either allowed to transit freely or returned to their, to their owners. Um, and, and we have had these events during a very limited period of time, as I've just mentioned, although our regulation has been in existence since 2003, or to enforce in 2003. So why is that? 
um, and I do believe that it is linked uh, with, uh, with uh, the Medifake operation which has been referred to, which is indeed an operation to fight fake medicines. And although we do not confuse, of course, transit of legitimate generics with fight for fakes, uh, but just like when uh, the police ask you a passport, 99% of the cases, you have nothing, there's nothing wrong. In only 1% case, you have something wrong. It doesn't mean that police could never ask you a passport. Um, so we have to keep this in mind. Now, uh, it is important also to understand that, of course, it is not the EU customs officials who decide whether they're going to keep something or not, or whether they're going to see something or not. They simply uh, detain, as I've said, goods temporarily, either ex officio or upon request from the right holders. And then they have to hand over uh, the goods to the, to the right holder or to, um, or to the owner of the goods. And I should add that, of course, if there is an abusive request by the right holder to customs officials for, uh, for uh, detention of goods, there is a liability. Uh, for this, and this is very important. Um, now, Sunjay kind of uh, went very quickly over what my colleague Patrick indeed has said yesterday in the European Parliament, and uh, since there is only one line of action and one line of a policy, uh, I see no reason for diverging, but it is indeed important that our objective is not to hamper trade in generics, and as I've said earlier, if it had been, we would have been more efficient, wouldn't we? because then we would stop, I don't know how many millions of generics travel through European borders or airports every year, but must be more than the five or ten cases which have been referred to. And indeed we remain, we do remain uh, totally committed to the Doha Declaration of Trips and Public Health, and actually I think that those who have a memory, institutional memory of this house know that we've been very active on this. We do remain committed to the Global Fund on HIV AIDS and the hundreds of millions of euros that we pay for this. And we, uh, our, 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 we do also um, remain committed to our, our two regulations in favor of access to medicine, Regulation 816 of 2006 on the manufacture and export under compulsory licenses, and secondly, on Regulation 953 of 2003 on the setting up of tiered pricing mechanism. This has not changed. And the main objective of the customs regulation, which is incriminated, is indeed to deal with infringements of IPR and the trade of counterfeit goods, which is indeed a growing concern and a priority for the EU, and I believe for many other countries, as evidenced by our statistics. And whereas the two issues of generics and fakes are, 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 are separate, it is also true uh, that indeed European customs have probably saved lives around the world by stopping a number of thousands of fakes. Now, uh, my friend Sunjay has uh, said that uh, the initiatives which have been taken were totally insufficient. Well, <clears throat> we have indeed drawn the attention of, one, the customs authorities, and secondly, the right holders on this, on this matter. And if you understand the functioning of our regulation, as I've just explained it, since no action can be taken after the deadlines of 10 plus 10 days, uh, but either pr prosecute the case uh, in, in front of a national court, and it is true, of course, that it is our member states and not the European Commission which decides eventually whether a, 
a particular product is or not um, uh, patented in, in one country. Well, the result is that if the right holders decide not to pursue the case, there will be no case. And we have uh, very insisted also with the customs officials that they have to implement the regulation 1383 very strictly, including the deadline issue. <laughs> I'm happy to recognize that India at least has, rec has admitted that uh, they have been fully associated with the exercise. Um, I cannot agree uh, with the comment which has been made that few responses have been given. There's been meetings even at ambassadorial level uh, giving absolutely full details. Um, and I, I think that really, uh, except if you don't want to be convinced, well, it is very clear the explanations have been given for these past cases. And, and I've said before, there's been no new cases. So what are, what are we still talking about? Um, Indeed, uh, I hear the request for a change of our, of our regulation uh, of customs, and by the way, in any case, it is foreseen since 2009, independently from uh, these events, uh, that our customs regulation is for review, and uh, there, there is an exercise ongoing of full transparency that anyone who has an interest can uh, make comments. Uh, for for a review of of, of of the regulation, and of course we we of course have heard what has been has been said here. So I would like to conclude here uh, by saying that we're talking about a very limited number of cases in the past, which have all been explained in details, and uh, we do not agree that this is a policy because. Uh, we are probably talking about something of a nano percentage of the medicines transiting through the EU, and talking of a policy uh, regarding a nano percentage uh, is, is really not uh, giving credit to reality of numbers. Um, as I've said also, I should add that because customs officials can only look into boxes, they cannot determine what is, what is legally protected or not, we can simply not as I don't know if this has been hinted or not by Professor Correa uh, when he mentioned that uh, GATT article means that uh, we should have uh, GATT provisions means that we have, have an unrestricted access, but we can't just make a special category in the customs that the mere labeling of any box would mean that the customs officials can't even look into it. This is, of course, what it is surrealist, uh, and this is not what we intend to do. This being said, as I've said, uh, we uh, remain totally committed to our, uh, to our policy of access to medicine, and I think that the reality and not uh, these few cases demonstrate that uh, we actually act what we mean. Of course, those who do not want to be convinced will never be convinced. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of my duty as a chair not to uh, directly respond, but there will be an opportunity uh, uh, subsequently. Uh, thank you for that response. I, I just have one question. I, I wasn't clear whether you think that there is actually a need for change, or are you, uh, when you say you're open to a change in the regulation, you then followed that, that up with that you felt that it was a limited situation. So are you open... Are you holding an open consultation where you will hear proposals for change? Well, I don't see the two um, parts of your sentence as contradictory. Yes, we're talking about limited cases, but yes, we are open to a review of the regulation, which is a process which has been 
actually ongoing or planned, if you want, since uh, since 2009, independently, actually, uh, from, from this event, and which englobe the whole regulation and not just these aspects. So, of course, we're open to it. It's not up to me, of course, to decide whether or not the regulation will be changed. Um, now I'm, I'm very happy to turn to Ambassador Mboyoke, who is the um, representative of Kenya. Ambassador. Thank you, Chair. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is a, a great privilege for me to participate in this roundtable uh, discussion uh, on access to medicines. Let me from the onset sincerely thank MSF for the efforts that have gone into organizing this meeting. It's not always easy. I can remember how many telephone calls and uh, discussions we've had over this. But I know it's not easy, and uh, but I think the issue at hand, uh, particularly for my country and for most countries uh, who <coughs> have large numbers of poor people, the issue is very, very important. And this is why I, I accepted to come and also listen, uh, but also share with you my thoughts and hopefully use the opportunity to represent not just Kenya, but to families of uh, those 10 million children who die every year uh, because of preventable causes of illness, and also to, to talk on behalf of the the families of the one million women who die every year because of pregnancy-related uh, problems which are preventable. So I felt that it's an honor for me to not just to sit back and say, well, this is something that is already being dealt with, but to come and share with you some perspectives. In the World Health Organization, we recently adopted a resolution. It's called Resolution WHA 61.21. In that resolution, we acknowledged that international agreements that have an impact on access to health products in developing countries need to be regularly monitored with respect to their development and application. I believe this particular forum today provides an opportunity and a very good opportunity to discuss some of the challenges arising from implementation of some of these agreements which have direct impact on access to medicines in developing countries. And listening to uh, Carlos uh, Sundi, uh, EU, and also to the chair, really it's an excellent uh, opportunity to listen but also to share 
knowledge and information on how some of these agreements can be better implemented for the benefit of public health. So I congratulate MSF. In my village, the first treatment program for AIDS was started by MSF. Actually, it was the first treatment program for, for HIV AIDS in Africa. And I remember that time asking them whether they were putting us as government into a, a corner because the moment the people start having access they will demand on government to widen the access. But they assured me that, you know, uh, generics will come very soon. At that time, there were no generic on ARVs. The generics will come, and the treatments will be cheaper, and more people will be able to access. So let's just start in a small way, allow us to do that. Then uh, when the generics come, we'll be able to get more people in treatment. And I can share with you today in my country, at that time there were only about 60 people on treatment for air, with ARVs for HIV AIDS. Today in my country we have close to a quarter million people on treatment. And they depend on generic medicines, mainly from India and other middle-income countries. And so any action that hampers or interferes with the uh, availability of these generic medicines, uh, you can appreciate with me, becomes really a life and death situation for us. And therefore, as in my capacity as ambassador, I, particularly dealing with health matters, I have to find more information and, if possible, intervene where necessary to... Uh, so that the, the voice and the views of those uh, 10 million children, their families, and 1 million women are adequately represented around the table at all times. This issue from listening to EU appears to be heading to some reasonable conclusion. These are, that's a very, very good statement from the European Commission. that there were only limited cases. They happened in the past. There's been no more of such cases. I hope you'd have said there will be no more of such cases and that the necessary review of the legislation uh, is being planned to address those short shortfalls. That's very good news for people like myself, and it's good news to give back to those I represent. That don't worry, there's a problem, but uh, like in life or in any organization, any institution, issues come and there are always a solution. And I believe that we can live with that, uh, but I'd like to look at this matter beyond just the EU. I think this particular issue is, affects many countries, and I, I have a number of cases where regulations by member countries, uh, even by states outside the European Union, does have a negative impact with regard to access to medicines. And so, while appreciating this issue at the moment, 
I think it's important to broaden our understanding and our participation to address a much bigger problem. And the bigger problem is the actual development and application of international agreements uh, that have impact on health. Uh, it appears to me uh, we need to have not only regular monitoring, but we need to have uh, the Director General of WTO in consultation with the WHO and the World uh, uh, Customs Organization and other related uh, international organizations to better coordinate and better raise awareness about these international agreements which have impact on health so that even the customs official or the revenue authority Whenever he's handling medicines and he sees these are vaccines, these are diagnostics, these are things for saving lives, I cannot afford to detain them. If I detain them and there's delay, it means I will contribute to that particular person who would have been saved uh, getting his medicine or a medicine. So this awareness needs to be raised so that as we apply even various regulations, at national level, at regional level, uh, there is sufficient sensitization of all the uh, authorities about the impact of this uh, on, on health in general. The World Health Assembly approved recently a global strategy on public health, innovation, and intellectual property. <coughs> now this strategy underscores the need for appropriate measures to prevent abuse of intellectual property rights by right holders or the resort to practices which unreasonably restrain trade or adversely affect the international transfer of technology in the field of health products. Now this is something that text that we negotiated, it was very difficult, but eventually the World Health Assembly, all the member states, agreed by consensus that these are issues that we must keep in touch. We cannot afford to have any, in any way possible any form of uh, manipulation or any form of uh, dealings that uh, would be used to uh, interfere uh, with access to medicines. I therefore believe that we need to review where necessary and appropriate any regulations which interfere or delay, lead to the delay of medicines reaching sick people. Uh, and that is not just in the ICs. This is, to me, the whole procurement supply chain management. If you delay uh, medicines from arri arriving at their port of entry, it means even the port of entry the time it takes for them to go through the customs of the recipient country, through the medical stores, and to the patients, it's delayed. And I've seen cases, this is really true, cases where medicines worth millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, have expired at the ports of entry because of delays. And when they do expire, not only do the patients who are meant to benefit uh, die, but also there's a big loss to those taxpayers who contributed their 
mega savings towards uh, ensuring these medicines are available. So the whole procurement, supply chain management, I would like us to look at this issue, not just as an EU or EC issue, but a much broader issue that must be tackled while looking at the entire broad spectrum of procurement and supply management chain. Uh, and that any regulation whatsoever, whether it's at the country of origin or the country where these medicines are being received, that does impede access, uh, those particular regulations are bad for public health. The DOA Ministerial Declaration on the TRIPS Agreement and Public Health confirms that the agreement does not and should not prevent members from taking measures to protect public health. The declaration, while reiterating commitment to the agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, affirms that the agreement can and should be interpreted and implemented in a manner supportive of the rights of WTO members to protect public health and in particular to promote access to medicines for all. So, so ladies and gentlemen, meeting public health objectives should be accorded uh, adequate leverage uh, in the development and application of uh, health-related uh, legislation in order to reduce inequalities which I've just described. I believe the commitment which we have around the table, the openness in which this issue is being addressed, and I believe also elsewhere, is a reflection of our collective desire to ensure that uh, we don't stand on the way of uh, legitimate trade in genetic medicines, uh, which are the backbone of public health in developing countries, especially poor countries uh, like my, my country and others. So I trust that this monitoring, effective monitoring, will continue. Uh, MSF, you're doing the right thing, and therefore you should continue to do it. And you're doing it in the right way by bringing all the people concerned around the table to discuss it. I think this is a way to move forward uh, because at the end of the day, uh, we are all committed. In the year 2000, uh, 147 heads of states and 189 countries signed the Millennium Declaration. And this declaration was later adopted by the United Nations. Strong commit commitments were made under the eight Millennium Development Goals. So I think we need to move in tandem with those commitments. And whatever we do should reflect the aspirations and the commitments uh, uh, which have been made, but more so be responsive to the needs of our people. So with those few remarks, uh, I'd like to thank you, Chair, and also thank MSF, and thank everybody for listening to me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Um, now I'd like to pass to um, Mr. Jose Anastal do Amaral Susaneto, my apologies for my pronunciation, who is the Counselor at the Permanent Mission of Brazil to the WTO. 
Um, thanks, uh, Madam Chair. Um, let me start by thanking you and uh, Médecins Sans Frontières for organizing this workshop. Uh, the discussion of the issue before us is a very timely one in the light of the cases of seizure of generic medicines in transit um, that have taken place in Europe lately as a result of the application of EC Regulation 1383-2003. Such seizures constitute a development that does have the potential of disrupting the international trade of generic medicines. And these medicines are usually a key element of national public health strategies, particularly in developing countries. And this is the case of my country, Brazil. Uh, one of the reported cases involved goods bound for Brazil. And most of my remarks, therefore, will be based on the particulars of that case. Um, just a brief recap. In December 2008, as is known, a cargo of around 500 kilos of Luzertan was seized in the Netherlands while in transit from India to Brazil. This um, pharmaceutical component is used, as is known, in the production of medicines against arterial hypertension. After 36 days, the cargo was sent back to India rather than continued on its planned way to Brazil. It is estimated that this shipment alone, this shipment that was diverted from its normal route and never reached its destination, would be enough to treat in my country around 300,000 patients monthly, patients suffering from hypertension. The combined effect of all the reported cases amounts to a serious threat to the legitimate trade of generic medicines for several reasons. I will mention five of those reasons. Reason number one, such a measure clear, clearly violates the freedom of transit of goods that is enshrined in Article 5 of the GATT. Freedom of transit is, in turn, one of the pillars of the international trading system. It provides a legal framework for both exporters and importers to select the most efficient transportation route from a purely logistics viewpoint. Only under very exceptional circumstances can this freedom of transit be restricted. Brazil is not aware of any such exceptional circumstances in the recent cases under EC Regulation 1383. The second reason is that the impact of each case is not confined to each individual transaction. A repeated pattern of seizures creates a good deal of uncertainty in relations among sellers and buyers and may lead them, as a preventive measure, to avoid transit routes that would otherwise be the most cost-effective ones. As a result, unnecessary transactional costs are added to the price of medicines, and this has a negative bearing on their affordability, especially among the poorest segments of the population in developing countries. That issue was raised in letters addressed to the European Commissioners for Trade, for Taxation and Customs Union, by humanitarian organizations such as Médecins Sans Frontières, and the same concern was expressed by Unit 8, uh, Unit 8 uh, in connection with the detention of generic medicine <coughs> in programs to combat AIDS in Africa. Reason number three is that seizures taken under the umbrella 
of EC Regulation 1383 represent an attempt at extraterritorial enforcement of patent rights. One of the underlying principles of the existing international intellectual property rights system is that of territoriality. In the case of the seizure of Lozertan, bound for Brazil, the cargo was held by the Dutch customs office at the request of patent holders of Lozertan in that particular European country. Lozertan enjoys no patent protection in either India or Brazil. This has not been questioned. And by the way, whether or not that product is protected in the country of transit is irrelevant, for it was never intended for use in the Dutch market and therefore would not risk undermining any of the rights conferred to patent holders in the Netherlands. Breach of the principle of territoriality may, in a nutshell, set precedents that can cause systemic repercussions for the intellectual property system. Reason number four, EC Regulation 1383 establishes operating procedures that favor patent holders relative to public interest. Patent holders are granted, for example, the power to request that immediate action be taken by customs authorities to detain goods while they, the patent holders, take a decision on whether or not they should pursue that particular case. By the same token, the operating principles of EC Regulation 1383 seem to be conducive to solutions between the private agents, namely the patent holder, their requested attention, and the exporter, with little, if any, participation by public authorities in the merits of the decision to seize goods. That approach may lead to abuses by patent holders, as has just been uh, stated today by Professor Carlos Correa in his opening statement. That approach is not justifiable, and especially in the case of medicines, where those decisions may have serious implications on public health, for public health. Um, reason number five, EC Regulation 1383 can hardly be reconciled with the spirit and the letter of the Doha Declaration on TRIPS and Public Health, which states that TRIPS, the TRIPS agreement can and should be interpreted and implemented in a manner supportive of WTO members' right to protect public health and to promote access to medicines for all. Seizures of generics legally in transit between developing countries may not only increase the cost of medicines at the destination market, but also in practice deny the very basic human right of access to medicine. Madam Chair, I have limited myself for time constraints to giving you briefly five reasons why the cases of seizure in the European Union may become a threat to the legitimate trade of generic medicines. In Brazil, the matter is obviously under consideration, but this is a much broader movement. People everywhere, in particular in developing countries, are following this debate with a good deal of attention. Attention and concern for the matter involves the ability of the international community to deliver quality medicine promptly, safely, and cheaply to vast segments of the world population. In concluding, uh, Madam Chair, our goal in Brazil, and we will pursue that goal, is that the most controversial aspects of the EC resolution be reviewed 
so that seizures of genetics and groundless charges of infringement of patent rights no longer take place. And thank you. Thank you very much, and, and at this stage, your brevity was much appreciated. Um, can I uh, now turn uh, to Arnold Guest, who is a, a lawyer at uh, Van Diepen van der Kroof in uh, Amsterdam. Is Edwin here? Over here, Chair. Sure. Ah, yes. Swapped him around, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Arnold, please go ahead. Thank you, Chair, for the word. Um, um, a number of things that have been put forward by the speakers here resound uh, with my experience as a practitioner involved in some of the cases we've been uh, hearing about. Of course, I can't comment on any particular case. Um, I'll try not to. Um, but um, just, if you will, um, allow me to say something about what, what is the situation of a manufacturer exporting to uh, third world countries or third countries confronted with a detention in the Netherlands. <coughs> um, well, the first uh, thing about generics, to, in my mind, is that it's all about cost. And, um, and uh, delivering effective medicine at the lowest possible cost to those uh, who need it. Um, now, when the manufacturer is uh, confronted with a detention, he will receive um, word uh, from the right holder and uh, that will be in the form of a warning letter drafted by a lawyer a lawyer who will do his best to word the letter as threatening as possible <clears throat> um, the manufacturer will be um, um, uh, informed that he will forfeit the consignment either by not reacting within a certain time frame and that is according to the regulation um, or by signing the waiver uh, or abandonment of goods that is attached to the warning letter. Uh, the third, pro uh, third way open to him is to protest the detainment, and then he will be sued. Now, uh, any litigation, and especially litigation involving patents, is rather costly. It is even costly in the Netherlands, which is uh, relatively um, cost-friendly, so to say. Um, and in my experience, um, Mr. Ambassador has talked about shipments which, um, which are worth millions, but in my experience what the shipment is worth to the manufacturer is n does not outweigh the possible cost of litigation. Litigation will far uh, will, uh, cost of litigation will far exceed <coughs> the commercial value of the shipment. Um, so other options to fulfill the particular consignment eh, to, to deliver the goods to the client are far cheaper than uh, sticking to the to the to the uh, fighting the detention is more expensive than sending another shipment you know, often. This might, might explain also why there have been no new cases or why there have been so few cases relatively if you look at the percentage of um, goods that are being detained while in transit. <clears throat> um, now, there are other safeguards in the, in the regulation we're talking about. We call that, uh, particular, we call it the anti-piracy regulation because it has been called so in the past. Uh, the anti-piracy regulation allows the, um, the release of the shipment uh, on bail, so to say, uh, against security, but it is unclear what is the security needed 
to release the shipment. The shipment is worth um, and some X to the manufacturer, but uh, if you look at, for instance, possible license fees for the for the branded uh, branded uh, equivalent of the right holder, again, these license fees will far exceed the the, 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 the worth of the particular shipment. So, uh, letting these these goods pass on while paying for its posting um, bail is not an acceptable solution for the license holder, for the license, uh, licensee or the uh, right holder, which means that it's not a real, that is not a real solution. Mm, now, of course, if you um, um, establish that the detention uh, was not lawful and that there was no infringement after winning a court case, then uh, it is clear that the right holder and perhaps in some cases the, uh, the, uh, the customs authorities can be held liable for any damages. <coughs> but um, the, the, the crucial thing about um, this theoretical liability is that it is very hard to predict if you will eventually win because um, case law on this point and I mean uh, the EC case law on this point in the, in the different member states is very diverse and um, the troublesome thing for um, Dutch practitioners is that we have a long-standing tradition where it is um, held that goods which in their country of origin and destination do not infringe IP rights can still be detained by customs and found to infringe an IP right in the Netherlands. So this has been established case law um, already based on the old anti-piracy version, anti-piracy regulation version, and this is case law that is um, made by the Supreme Court of the Netherlands, so uh, it must not be unfamiliar with uh, European lawmakers, and um, the, the recent, um, uh, well, let me say, we are lucky uh, enough in this discussion that um, the IPPI uh, 2009 convention in Buenos Aires addresses uh, the border measures as a subject and um, this means that uh, all over Europe working groups have answered questions about these, uh, these issues and um, this would mean um, to, that you can see what is happening in different member states and the Dutch working group um, <coughs> states for instance um, so I'm, I'm quoting this so that you don't have to take my word for it, but that it's uh, a relatively impartial group of Dutch practitioners, scholars, who says this, that in order to establish infringement, goods in transit should be regarded by way of fiction as goods which have been produced in the Netherlands. Under the previous version of the anti-piracy regulation, Article 6, Paragraph 2, under B, um, this was considered to be the basis of the legal fiction. The Dutch Supreme Court has confirmed this in its ruling. Um, well, I'll spare you that. Um, but, importantly, in the new current version of the APR, the provision of Article 6, Paragraph 2 under B was not concluded anymore. Some of you will know that it is, uh, has been shifted from an article to a, a recital, but still the same text. Um, and, um, however, 
lower Dutch courts have decided that for the current version of the APR, the legal fiction still applies based on uh, based this on the eighth recital of the APR, as I said earlier. So um, here, to Clooney, according to Dutch courts, the EC legal framework leads to the conclusion of infringement, and based on a Dutch patent only, uh, the court that we're talking about, um, who has upheld this fiction, even under the new anti-piracy regulation, is the central patent court of first instance. So, a manufacturer confronted with a detention in the Netherlands will have to be advised that he can win his case, but only if he appeals, because the court of first instance is already not of the opinion that um, uh, that uh, infringement cannot be based solely on an, 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 an patent in the country of detention. He has to appeal or wait the outcome of preliminary questions being referred to the ECJ. Now, this is not very attempting, of course. Um, um, now, Madam Chair, if it's getting too boring, you have to... I'll, I'll look at you <laughs> regularly. Uh, but I would like to make the point, I would like to make the point that this is not a uh, Dutch issue. Uh, it, is a, it is an important point that the Dutch view, the, the, the ruling view, is based on easy law. But this uncertainty is all over Europe. And again, we can look at the, um, the country reports from uh, the different EC countries for the IPPI work uh, convention in, uh, in Buenos Aires. UK group concludes um, that, um, that whilst um, uh, it is not enough to have a patent infringement in the country of detention only, uh, there is current litigation ongoing in the UK against customs because they would not see his goods being transited through the UK. So it's the reverse image of the Dutch situation, which leads to litigation. And we don't know what the outcome of that litigation will be. Now, interestingly, the German group, and this is something that is echoed in uh, statements by you, sir, and, and Mr. Correa, um, the Dutch working group states that in the field of patent law, and this is translated from German, so in the field of patent law, this occasionally gives rise to the impression that order measures are mainly used in order to increase the readiness of the affected <coughs> importers to make a compromise, as you said, uh, prior to the conclusion of civil law proceedings, prior to the, to the uh, uh, conclusion of civil law proceedings relating to the question of infringement. This situation is sometimes seen as dissatisfactory. Uh, the working group concludes that in, um, in the de lege ferenda, so in the, in the, the law that uh, they would like to see, one should consider leaving the establishment of a suspected property right infringement to the specialized courts by applying for an interlocutory uh, judicial remedy. So they want judicial oversight and uh, put that between the struggle between manufacturer and consignee. Swedish group, uh, when asked, uh, action against infringing goods in transit, is that possible? Yes, that is possible. <coughs> if the right holder can prove that such goods are being released for free circulation or can prove other facts which necessarily entail their being put on the market. And this is the Montex Diesel leading European interpretation. But they add, this burden of proof 
proper right holder is, however, in practice not applied by customs. Customs accordingly seize goods in transit as other goods. Belgian group. The Belgian group, um, uh, no, the Belgian group says that the doctrine is devised uh, exactly on the point if the diesel Montex um, uh, 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 interpretation um, leans towards not accepting infringement uh, only based on a national patent. Um, uh, but, interestingly, uh, and this is in French, uh, plusieurs décisions de la jurisprudence belge répondent rendu en matière de brevet semblant, semble se prononcer en faveur d'une interprétation restreinte de cet arrêt et euh, appliquer l'enseignement de l'arrêt Paulo Laurent. Euh, dans ces affaires, le tribunal de première instance d'Anvers a autorisé les douanes à saisir les marchandises contrefaisantes qui, qui transitaient en Belgique sur base d'un simple risque de mise dans le commerce de ces marchandises sans exiger de la part du titulaire de preuves irréfutables de cette mise dans le commerce. So that would conclude my overview of the European uh, confusion. Um, and um, I am very, very keen to learn from others if there can be uh, a technical solution which would... Um, resolve the uh, uncertainty hanging over uh, all stakeholders, especially um, when it comes to patents. Thank you. Thank you for a, a non-boring practitioner's view. It was very helpful. Um, and now can I uh, turn to, um, we're very pleased that we have a, a member of the European Parliament with us. Uh, so can I ask uh, Mr. Nicolo Rinaldi to, to now take the floor? Thank you, thank you very much indeed, uh, first of all, for having invited uh, to, to join this panel and also for all the activity that Doctors Without Borders uh, is conducting uh, in uh, raising awareness about, uh, about this issue. Uh, clearly, this is uh, an issue which is on one side extremely complicated from the legal point of view, on the other side it's extremely delicate for its political consequences. And I come personally, uh, I'm a newly elected member of the European Parliament, and my very first uh, political experience, I come from a uh, rather administrative, uh, some, somehow also legal background, but I would focus rather on the political side of, uh, of this matter, taking also into consideration that the European Parliament has already been quite active on, uh, on this issue. And what we see here, to me is quite clear, we see two principles and two conflicting interests. The first principle is fight against uh, counterfeiting, which is something which is acknowledged by the world communities as such, and something which is very much supported by the European Parliament and on which the European Commission is particularly active. And on the other side, we have another principle, which is access to medicine for developing countries, which has to be an affordable price and it has to be um, accessible. On the other side, we see two conflicting interests. 
as a matter of fact. The interest of some European medicine producers, which is fighting to try to keep its own share in the world market, which is challenged by emerging new uh, industries coming from developing countries with a much cheaper product, which doesn't mean at all a lower quality product, and which can be tempted to abuse of counterfeiting regulations in order to try to protect uh, its own uh, selfish interest, if I can put uh, so. And then the other interest is the interest of the patients in the South that needed to be treated, needed to be um, provided with adequate uh, medical uh, assistance. And the two things together, they don't go open, and we have to make somehow uh, a choice. But I don't think there is any plot. I certainly agree with uh, the head of unit coming from the European Commission. I don't think that uh, here we have to uh, believe that there is some kind of design in order to punish uh, organization working on humanitarian ground uh, and uh, passions in the south uh, and protecting uh, interest uh, of uh, those uh, pharmaceutical industries in, in the north. Nevertheless, I believe that there is a serious case for abusing the current procedures. And what I can uh, see in uh, Regulation uh, 1383 is that there is certainly a number of things which are, so to say, um, strange. Let's say there are weak points. First of all, it is a weak point that this regulation applies also to goods in transit. And we know that under WTO rules, there is no really, uh, as far as I understand, a clear cut if member states of WTO have to implement counterfeiting measures also on transit goods or not. I understand that the European Commission, the European Union, went for a broader interpretation of WTO uh, rules, which is uh, indeed a legitimate choice, but which is politically questionable at this very point. Secondly, the right holder is to some extent the king player of the, of the situation, because it's up to the king, uh, up to the, the, the right holder to go to the court to ask for uh, intervention, and uh, basically he has time on his side. And time, of course, matters in this issue. While the owner of the, of the medicine, and eventually, of course, the beneficiaries of the medicines, they have no time. And it is quite interesting to see uh, what happened in the, in the two cases I'm, I'm aware of. One is the, the cases in, in the Netherlands, and the other one is the cases which took place this year in May in, uh, in Frankfurt, where in both cases, at the end, the two um, um, stocks of medicines were released. And they were released because uh, nothing could really prove that they were counterfeiting products or, 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 or staff violating uh, uh, copyright patents, uh, patents rights. Uh, but as a matter of fact, those uh, medicines have been kept for at least one month 
And this is a serious penalization for uh, the people who are affected and we're waiting for this uh, uh, medicine and, of course, for the organization who are in charge of the delivering of the staff. And it is interesting to, to me to see uh, how it actually handled the first case in the Netherlands because if I well understood, the agreement at the end was that the two sides, the owner and the white holder, decided to come to some kind of bilateral arrangement in releasing the, the, the medicine, but not sending them to the beneficiaries of the medicine, but sending back to the country of origin, which make me very suspect, suspicious, uh, su suspecting that uh, the owner of the right was certainly not very much willing to go to the court, fearing that he would have lost, and on the other side, the owner of the staff, of the medicine, had no time to go to the court, even if probably he would have won the case, but he had no time, and rather than to wait for a long procedures, he had preferred to uh, repatriate, so to say, the medicine and to reroute uh, an alternative uh, itinerary. I see there and uh, I come from the Liberal uh, Democrat group in the European Parliament, so we are extremely committed to free trade and very suspicious whenever there are uh, obstacles to uh, free trade uh, or uh, um, uh, circulation of goods, etc., and uh, some kind of introduction of uh, uh, mass protectionist uh, uh, measures, uh, that uh, the procedure here can be easily abused by the, uh, right, uh, the right holder. It is just enough to say, well, I think this stuff this custom can be counterfeited and actually a long procedure may start which is not affecting the right uh, the, the holder but is actually affecting the uh, owner of the staff and again the patients on, uh, on, uh, on the ground. I don't think that the European Commission and the European Union should uh, underestimate this, uh, this issue. To me it doesn't really matter if it happens once or twice what it matters is that it can happen, and it can have, we're talking about medicine, we're talking about public health or individual health eventually, we're talking about something which is extremely delicate, it simply should not happen. And I would like to uh, invite the Commission uh, basically to clarify once for all the position, because we are getting, as European Parliament, we, 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 we've been very active, I mean, on, on, on that in the, in the past mandate, uh, we uh, produced a resolution on access to medicine, uh, a number of uh, questions have been put to the Commission by different numbers of, of members, uh, but we received, uh, uh, so to say, uh, conflicting information from, uh, from the European uh, Commission. I can simply remind that, for instance, in March 2009, uh, the Commission answered in uh, writing to the European Parliament that basically everything was fine and saying that the custom procedure in place in the European, is a quote, in the European Union has, been, has proven to be effective, balanced, and with sufficient inbuilt guarantees to avoid abuse by bad faith companies. To the extent that the European Commission is considering to introduce similar provisions in the new generation of bilateral trade agreements, which certainly is something that could be of some concern to, to us. And to conclude, that is not convinced that the incident mentioned uh, justifies in itself a review of a legal mechanism that has been in place for several years without problems. 
just one month later, in uh, March 2009, the Commission replied to a similar question from the Parliament that the Commission is monitoring customs actions under Regulation 1383 so as to ensure that they are in line with the international obligation of the community as well as the EU policies to avoid any barrier to legitimate generic trade and to support WTO members' rights to protect public health and to promote the access of medicines for all. We look further into this particular case in the Netherlands and into any other case that might be reported and see whether any conclusions should be drawn. So I can see already there an evolution of the position of the Commission. And in an informal note, which has given to us uh, a few days ago from the Commission, the Commission acknowledged the, the existence of the problem and it says that the Commission has taken a number of initiatives to draw the attention of customs authorities as well the pharmaceutical industry, insisting on the need for a correct implementation of Regulation 1383 and reminding the EU, EU commitment as regards uh, access to medicine to India, Brazil, uh, etc. And this exercise may lead to an amendment of the regulation. So, the least I can say is that, uh, uh, as actually uh, my predecessor said, there is some confusion in, uh, in, uh, in the European Union. Again, I don't think it's bad faith. I think it's simply that the matter is complex, and we have both a combination of legal aspects and, uh, and political uh, consequences. But I think it's very important that we put end to this kind of hesitation and to this kind of uh, confusion. What can we do uh, eventually in order to uh, try to solve uh, these, uh, this problem? Uh, probably we don't need to, so to say, overemphasize this issue. And I think that we have to uh, give credit to uh, the Commission for his good willing in uh, work out a quick solution. Secondly, we have to implement whatever liability measures are there to avoid all kinds of abuse of the procedures and uh, uh, of Regulation 1383. Uh, on that, actually, I would like to, to know if any kind of penalty has been committed to uh, the cases that we're talking about, because uh, after one month nothing was proven in order to uh, stop and to seize the, 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 the medicine, and they've been released, but there has been indeed a loss for the organization uh, concerned and, of course, for, for the people. And again, the problem here is that even if there is uh, some liability, which I'm not sure that there is for the, for the companies which have uh, involved the, the sizer of the, of the medicine, uh, financial compensation doesn't really matter on, uh, on this uh, delicate humanitarian health uh, and health ground. Third, we need to urge the Commission to uh, be quick in, uh, in, in his answer, and the Parliament position, I cannot really speak on behalf of the entire Parliament, but I can say that the Parliament, uh, in broader sense, is certainly uh, very positive on uh, a change of the regulation, because uh, I think a couple of minor but meaningful changes of the regulation would solve the problem, and at the same time, it will still guarantee all kinds of counterfeiting actions uh, uh, which, is, uh, which is required. Fifth, uh, I have to say, uh, fourth, uh, I have to say that the issue has been treated very much so far in legal terms, but as uh, Mrs. Childs said in his opening remark, this is very much a political issue as well. And he has 
uh, we need that a political dimension at the end prevails on, uh, on settling this, this issue. And on that, I think it's also relevant to see what's happening uh, uh, to the Lisbon Treaty, because if the Lisbon Treaty um, will eventually come into force, the European Parliament will have full co-decision on external trade, which of course doesn't apply to this specific regulation, but the balance of power and the role, the political role of the European Parliament in dealing also with this issue uh, will uh, definitely uh, be uh, strengthened. Uh, and eventually I would say that it's important, and here I, I have to take my responsibility as Member of Parliament, but also address this to, to uh, uh, doctors Without Borders to embark the public opinion in, uh, in this issue, because I don't think the public opinion should be uh, indifferent on, uh, on, on this case. It is, to some extent, a detail of what's happening in the North-South uh, relationship or in what's happening uh, in uh, uh, the world trade uh, uh, mechanism, but uh, details matter. Details uh, are very important. And uh, I think that if the public opinion is uh, well aware and becomes well aware, that will become uh, indeed uh, uh, an important factor in, uh, solving, in solving the problem. What is at stake here eventually is the credibility of the European Union. We have to do what we say that we do. Not always this is the case. And, uh, uh, the ethical dimension of our trade and the ethical dimension also of the implementation of our own rules should again prevail on all other considerations. Otherwise, I think uh, we lose credibility and we are all lost. Thank you, Thank you very much. Um, I'd now like to turn to Edwin de Vogue, who is the Managing Director of IDA Foundation. Edwin. Uh, thank you, Ms. for this uh, initiative. Uh, IDA is a a medicine wholesaler. We supply medicines uh, since 37 years. We fight for accessibility and affordability. And um, we do uh, procurement, uh, supply chain management, and distribution of essential medicines, ARVs, antimalarials, and uh, anti-TB medicines. And we execute, for example, the ARV programs for the Clinton Foundation and uh, the second-line TB for GDF. Now, uh, a lot has been said already uh, today, and uh, I don't want to uh, repeat, but uh, our core activity is uh, supplying the, the medicines. We are not lawyers. Uh, we don't know exactly in detail how the law works, but we are supporting counterfeit. We are also supporting uh, uh, accessibility. <laughs> We are, sorry, we are fighting counterfeit. Uh, <laughs> I saw Mr. <laughs> Thank you for giving me the, the signal, Mr. De Ville. Um, we are not lawyers. Uh, we want to uh, follow the, the, the law and uh, distribute medicines in an as efficient way as possible. Um, we do about 80% of our medicines are, um, are generic medicines, and for the ARVs that is probably 95%. And uh, as Mr. Okeo uh, rightly pointed out, um, in, um, in developing countries uh, there are no stocks. Uh, we do not have alternatives. If you have children 
uh, that are ill and you go to the pharmacy to buy them some amoxicillin and they don't have the, the right brand in stock, you just say, take something else. In Africa that's not possible. So, although there have been only 19 cases according uh, to Mr. De Villiers, I think uh, each of those cases uh, may have caused a lot of patients to die. And um, I think uh, 19 cases may be uh, few on the total number of shipments that pass through Europe to developing countries. Um, but each of them proves that there is something wrong in our legislation, that there is a conflict of in, uh, interest between the, the enforcement of uh, two different legislations, which in itself are good, and um, what, we, um, uh, what we think is we should, uh, what we are missing so far is uh, a kind of sense of urgency, a sense of, uh, uh, sense of uh, responsibility, because uh, we now know since uh, December last year that there is a problem in the execution of the legislation, and uh, so far we have heard from the different authorities, the Dutch authorities, and from the European Commission, we have heard explanations. We have also heard um, that action will be taken, but for us, we just want to follow the rules. We don't know what is the rule at this moment, so we are taking... Uh, we are taking gambles, we are not taking gambles on you, we are taking gambles on lives of patients. So um, we would like to ask the European Commission uh, to take responsibility and uh, to come up with a clear plan of action. And also uh, let us know when, uh, even if it is difficult legislation, uh, when we will know uh, what is the structural solution and also if uh, that takes too long, uh, what will be the, the way we can cope with this uh, in, incongruence in the, in the legislation? Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, last but no means least is uh, Anthony Tolman, who is the Director of Intellectual Property at the World Tra Trade Organization. Tony. Thank you very much, Michelle. Uh, I'm glad to be able to reassure you, that, reassure you that sometimes last is least, and uh, I will do my best to, to be the least, also looking at the time available, but thank you so much for the opportunity to, to take part. Uh, you also mentioned uh, the legal niceties, uh, if that's not a contradiction in terms, uh, as well as, uh, and we've also covered the policy uh, perspective, the political dimension, and indeed the, you know, the practical impact on the ground. Uh, my contribution will be least because I can really cont contribute to none of those uh, aspects, uh, above all the, the legal um, aspect, because of course um, we're under importantly tight constraints of, over those kind of issues. And so uh, even if uh, it sounds like I'm offering a legal opinion on something, I'm certainly not. Uh, it's, a, it's very clear. Uh, but I will offer one legal opinion though. You mentioned also, Michelle, that this was a conciliation uh, panel. Um, and uh, I would draw to the attention of participants that uh, the uh, WTO law is quite clear that uh, under Article 5 of the DSU, conciliation panels are, are uh, entirely confidential 
and uh, don't pre prejudice the interests of the members involved. So we should bear that in mind. But seriously, that issue has come up uh, in terms of correspondence between uh, the Director-General, Pascal Lamy, and uh, uh, a number of um, uh, civil society organisations who uh, actually, if you like, put on the public agenda the question of the role of the WHO in relation to this and similar issues. And I think the important uh, point to draw out from that, uh, that response is that, of course, um, the role of the WHO is um, to uh, serve, as you like, as, as an arbiter, to, to take part, uh, to, to assist uh, members in um, uh, resolving uh, their differences. But this is not an ex officio role. This is uh, entirely uh, at the initiative of, of members concerned. And uh, uh, that's an important reason why you know, we wouldn't uh, want to comment on this issue, uh, the specifics of this issue in any way. Uh, so uh, I, I would, however, point to another element of uh, uh, General Lamy's response, which was a, a broader comment that uh, in terms of overall commitment on the part of the WTO as, as an organisation, of the members of the organisation, uh, it is pretty clear that there's a, there's a common commitment. Indeed, uh, the letter says a strong determination uh, to address uh, access to medicines issues. And uh, the, the Doha Declaration has been mentioned, of course, in this context. But it's worth bearing in mind also that of all of the thousands of pages of, of trade uh, law uh, that was uh, settled in the Eurogo round that was uh, concluded in 1994, the only agreement on which members have, have uh, the only amendment to their entire package that uh, WTO members have agreed upon in the meantime, in the 15 years since then, has been precisely to uh, promote the uh, to access to medicines. Uh, that's, that's the very objective of the, the amendment to the Trips Agreement, which is uh, currently, we hope, approaching entry into force. Uh, so there are, if you like, objective um, uh, indications that this is a common concern uh, among our, our membership uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the broader context. Uh, and from the point of view of, of a, um, uh, a, a, a secretariat, uh, I think uh, Ambassador Oyoko's uh, comments are, uh, are very important uh, for us. We have, do have uh, clear messages uh, from our members and our counterparts in other organisations such as the WHO and uh, WIPO also uh, under expectation uh, from their member states to, uh, to cooperate, to do what we can together uh, to, to in ensure that uh, capacity building takes place, that it is focused on uh, health priorities and that it is uh, effective and properly coordinated. And certainly that's something that uh, we are trying to do. I'd like to uh, also mention, uh, from the broadest policy perspective, uh, the, the light that this sheds on, on well, the TRIPS agreement in general. Uh, and and I, I stress this is not uh, getting into the legality of the question. But I think it's important to, uh, to, to bear in mind that the, the policy debates about, well, about public health generally, but, but more, more broadly as well, uh, have moved from 
not just a focus on what uh, IP rights are granted uh, and uh, what their, their formal status is, but also what happens to them uh, out in the real world, if you like, how they are exercised, uh, what, the, what firms uh, do and should not do in terms of seeking to enforce their rights, uh, and more broadly, the role of uh, enforcement mechanisms. I think it is uh, interesting to, to point out that uh, the enforcement uh, component of uh, TRIPS obligations has had relatively little overall policy attention, although it is imp an important part of the, the broader policy mix. Uh, and uh, the negotiators of TRIPS, I think, uh, did have in mind this importance of keeping uh, the, this famous balance that we often refer to in IP policy, maintaining this balance through the enforcement process so that uh, necessarily uh, scarce uh, enforcement resources are focused on uh, where they are most uh, uh, appropriate uh, and uh, also to provide certain safeguards for legitimate traders. And that's not a controversial statement that's there in the, in the uh, TRIPS agreement itself. Now, what that means in terms of specific uh, mechanisms, uh, choices of members to, to give effect to those broad principles, I'm not touching those questions, but certainly uh, it is important to look again at the TRIPS agreement in this broader uh, policy context. Um, so I, I would uh, uh, conclude on that, on that point just uh, with summarising on three, three general observations. Firstly, uh, TRIPS and, and more broadly the uh, WTO system does refer to dispute prevention and settlement. I mean, this is a, a forum that is uh, meant to uh, find members a, a, a way through to deal with uh, issues that necessarily inevitably arise in, in any trading relationships. An important part of that is transparency, and that's the first uh, point I'd mentioned to in, in highlighting uh, the need for greater attention to enforcement as a, as a broader, much broader policy issue. And that is to say that in the course of uh, the work of the TRIPS Council, uh, a, a huge amount of uh, very useful information has been tabled and circulated about enforcement enforcement mechanisms. There's been quite a, uh, a detailed dialogue between our members on those questions. And uh, uh, we hope that uh, we'll, we'll be able to find ways of making that information uh, more readily available to a, a broader uh, policy audience um, in, in line with the broader directives we've been given uh, by the General Counsel. Uh, secondly, of course, um, this, this organisation, among uh, others in the international system, does provide uh, a policy forum uh, to explore the, the broader issues uh, on the table, and of course this, this session today is, is a good illustration of that. Uh, and finally, regarding the, um, the dispute settlement question, you know, I reiterate that uh, uh, it's important to look at the uh, the safeguards in the, in, in the, in the system in that uh, it's not our role uh, to intervene or to, to take initiatives, but, but simply to provide a, I hope, a neutral and trusted mechanism when, when that is the, the choice uh, of our members. And that, that does point to the, again, at the broadest policy level, to the, uh, the interest in having uh, a, a system of, of, uh, uh, that, is, uh, that is trusted, that, it, that is multilateral and transparent in nature, uh, and does provide uh, uh, an overall environment in which uh, uh, differences can be, can be uh, uh, dealt with appropriately. 
setting that uh, against the, the broader uh, context of the WTO as well, it, it's worth bearing in mind that in relation to uh, public health policy and its interaction with uh, intellectual property, there are very broad areas of agreement. Uh, there is, I think, a, a very common sense of purpose, uh, one that uh, as a secretariat uh, we certainly do feel bound to do our best to implement uh, at the direction of, of, our, of our political superiors. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, and I'd, I'd like to thank all of the, the speakers for their, their clarity. Um, we, we, ha we are pushing against time, but I'm conscious that the audience has been extremely patient. Um, and um, I would like to give a, an opportunity for questions, but could I ask you to be brief? Um, and um, John, I think you had a... A comment or a question? Thank you. Yes. Could you introduce yourself as well, please?